It was finally spring, and you carefully lifted the traps from the water. You'd learned that to pull up traps, you had to be steady, slow, and consistent. It didn't matter how strong you were or how long you'd been pulling up those lobster traps. What mattered was the steady motion and not overexertion. It was your fifth trap of the day, and Charlie watched on. It's hard to think you'd ever thought of him as danger. Despite having only been in the village for a few months, your housemates were accepted immediately. The small village had set up systems for food production. Production was a generous term. It was seaweed harvesting, almost solely seaweed harvesting, but still found more ways than you'd ever expect to cook it. It turned out the people in town had long prepared before the city had taken things seriously and sat on massive stores of staples from propane to flour. It didn't mean you were living the way you had before, but definitely an improvement to looting the leftovers no one else wanted. It was April and it was cold on the water. You'd had some luck pulling in some rock crabs and despite hating the taste of crab before, it might have been the most delicious thing you'd eaten in your life. You'd set the trap, caught it, and you'd provided for your friends and family. It felt incredible. Today, you were out for lobster. As the spring had settled in more, the tides had calmed, and Charlie felt better about bringing the boat closer to the rocky coast further north. You thought of your friends, how you'd watched them grow in the village. Once the awkwardness and the realization that no one needed to worry about the other the locals swiftly got to work training and educating your group. Cooking classes, seaweed identification, water desalination, first aid and wound care, you name it. There were no leaders, no bosses, just jobs that needed to be done and people that needed to do them. The benefit of the freedom is that you could do one thing for a few weeks and switch with someone else later. Everyone got to try everything and it created a sense of mutual respect. We were all in it together, quite literally. Despite being a small town far from other villages, there was still the fear of being seen and what that might mean. The fact that obviously people were still alive and surviving in small towns across the country wasn't forgotten, but without a regulated rule of law, there was no shortage of groups exploiting people as they could for whatever they could. You'd seen it in the city, and you knew eventually it would show up at your doorstep again. But, for now, you enjoyed the freedom of working hard and not having to think deeply. You took a deep breath of the cold, fresh air and got back to work. Charlie had always been on the water since you'd arrived. He'd never switched roles, and that was probably a good thing, because you can't imagine there were two people as skilled at sailing and reading the ocean as he was. He knew the inlets up and down the coast for 10 miles and could find everything from eels to shellfish, no matter the conditions. That didn't mean harvesting was easy, though. The town had proven to be resilient. Much like the sandy dunes, the town withstood what seemed to be an insurmountable task that never ceased, absorbing shock after shock of being cut off from the world. And yet, it still beat on. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts, including Amazon as of recently. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. Shout out to our recent Patreons, JerBear205, MJ Wallace, and Sam Gates. You guys are amazing, and we can't express our gratitude for your contributions. We don't explicitly offer benefits to our Patreon subscribers at this time, Knowledge is for everyone, and if we get more than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes and keep you in the loop. However, we did recently post a one-time episode on prepping for the election, which, despite only having been a month ago, feels like it may as well have been six months, and multiple years' worth of news have followed up since then, so I'm not even sure if it's relevant anymore. However, it is up there, so 
go check it out if you're curious what would have happened if RGB didn't die and if Trump hadn't caught COVID. That said, we do have a couple episodes that we've been working together on that I think will probably get dropped on Patreon because they don't have a place in the rest of the podcast. We're also working on getting some stickers done, and we've got the artwork all ready to go. It's just getting down to getting printed. And as I'm sure you know, right now is wild times, and everything is taking just a little bit longer. Lastly, while we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So please go check us out on Patreon if you can. Additionally, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly helpful, and we appreciate seeing your time and effort to give us feedback and help us stand out in the vast sea of podcasts. We've been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you guys do by giving reviews and telling other folks about us, and it's awesome. Thank you, guys. We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, for real this time, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge that we find interesting, as well as some of the stuff we're up to, like my recent foraging adventures for hickory nuts. And, of course, we've got memes. And, if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. In this episode, we're going to be doing a dive into grazing systems, what different systems are, and so on. This is going to be a part of a two- or a three-part series, mostly because the content is dense and we're really not even going to scratch the surface of it. And before you hit the skip button because you're thinking, well, I don't live on 50 acres of land, so I'm not about to get any cows or goats soon, so this doesn't really apply to me, just hold up a second. Generally, when we talk about things like food forests, people can get on board pretty quickly with the idea of planting a fruit tree or two, maybe even some nut trees. Even adding some berries seems to not be a significant challenge for most folks. However, when we get to the discussion of incorporating animals into this process, it's like things get a little too real. There's a fear of responsibility when it comes to even a chicken that doesn't exist with trees or bushes. Plus, folks can get nervous because it's something you kind of can't hide, like having a chestnut tree in your backyard. People are going to notice if you have a chicken or a duck. That said, there are significant benefits to managing edible landscaping with animals. With the right management techniques, having some animals on your property can be less work than having some fruit trees. The key is proper management, and I'll use chickens as an example. If you talk with many folks with chickens, they'll tell you about how they're not too much work, but you have to watch for parasites, and will recommend a good book for chicken health, and what to watch for when it comes to their feet, mites, and so on. These people generally keep their chickens in a coop that doesn't move, and those chickens spend their time in the same run, all day, and live almost solely off of feed, with the occasional treats mixed in, stuck in their own filth until it gets changed again. And that's not to speak disparagingly about people that have chickens in a coop and don't free-range, but it does add another layer, whereby controlling the chicken within a small range, it exacerbates the issues that chickens can have. Just like our fruit trees, we have to keep our animals in as natural of a state in order to reduce health risks. That doesn't mean you can't keep a chicken coop and have healthy chickens. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, by mimicking nature as much as we can, we can eliminate those challenges that create more work for us as custodians of the land. Nearly every animal kept for food, whether eggs, dairy, or as a meat, is a natural grazer. So we're going to talk about grazing management. And I know, you don't even have a dog, never mind a goat. That's cool. But maybe you're thinking about it. It's on that list of maybe in a few years when I've got time and space that seems to always be in a few years. I get it. It's scary if it's not something you grew up with. Otherwise, just shove this knowledge in the in case shit hits the fan section of your brain. 
nothing super complicated, just some basics if you ever found yourself in a position where you're working to feed people with animals. If we think back to our soils episode, we talked a lot about the ultimate success of any ecological system being dependent on plants being able to absorb sunlight into energy that can be stored in the plants themselves and the soil. We talked a bit about different grazing systems very quickly and highlighted how by mimicking nature, doing intensive grazing, we are able to maximize plant growth, which ultimately maximizes the ability of the land to host animals. But first, we should take a quick step back to talk about some basic terms that will help us continue this dialogue. Two terms that sound interchangeable but are very important to know distinctly for our purposes is stocking rate and stock density. Stocking rate is how many animals can graze in a particular area for an extended period of time. Say, 10 cows on 10 acres would be one cow per acre, while stock density is the amount of animals present at a particular time in a very specific area, usually an area that's fenced off, called a paddock. Typically, animals are in paddocks for short periods of time, and as we discussed in the second soil episode, that the usage of paddocks can significantly impact the land's ability to sustain more animals. Before you start building out your grazing area, there are some pretty basic questions you might want to ask yourself. Realistically, what species and class of livestock are you going to raise? That is, are you looking to raise goats? And if so, for meat, for dairy, or both? Maybe goats and chickens? How much of the year do you want to utilize the pasture system? Is this just while the weather is good? Or are you looking to have your animals graze year-round, even in the snow? Because that is an option, even though most people aren't aware of it. What are the resources you have available to work with? How big is your land, and how big is your budget? What is the realistic potential productivity of your pasture system? If you live in the desert, 10 acres of land won't provide as much support as 10 acres in Oregon. What is your commitment level to the management of the system? That is, how much research are you willing to do? How much upfront planting and planning and seeding are you prepared for? And how much time do you have to transport animals around paddocks? Everyone loves fresh milk. They don't love getting up at 5 a.m. to milk the goat. Not keeping a rotation going or not keeping up with weed control one year can plague your grazing systems for years to come. There are systems that you can put into place that yield very high quality and quantities of forage, but if you do not have the time to manage the system intensely, you can't expect those returns. There's no use investing resources into fencing, water, seed, and equipment if you are not able to dedicate the time into animal movement or pasture management. And that's all the scary stuff. If that didn't scare you away, great. These are some of the questions you should be keeping in mind. But also, like, remember, it's really not that complicated. I didn't grow up with much for livestock. My grandparents had rabbits because we were Italian and that's what we did. And their neighbors had ducks. So that was pretty much my exposure growing up. When I decided to get chickens, even though I'd grown up around farm animals, even in a city space, the idea of actually doing it myself, the first thing I did being the type of person I am is I actually bought a book about chicken health and I started following groups on Facebook about chickens and things like that. And the amount of stuff that was out there that people were asking about this about my chicken or that about my chicken, it just seemed overwhelming. And I thought, I'm, I'm never going to be able to do this. And I was like, how could I not be able to do this? People have lived with chickens literally for a millennia. Plenty of dumber people than I have survived with chickens. So I think I'm just overthinking it. And I was right. At the end of the day, there wasn't a lot to it with free-range chickens. Conversely, that also plays out in other animals. Of course, bigger animals come with other challenges. But that said, it's not as complicated as you might think when you start doing research. The hardest part, really, if you're passionate about something like this, is figuring out the system you want, the animals that you want, and getting whatever pasture system you want to use in place. This is where I think people get fumbled up. They decide, I want goats, and they know they might get cold feet, so they hurry up and get some with a little pen set up, and they try to figure out how to build up the pasture to sustain the goats, 
but the pasture can't overcome the goats grazing and it becomes a muddy mess and you and your goats and your neighbors are miserable from the smell of shit, bugs, and constant muck. And I don't want that to happen to you. So fortunately, you're listening to this podcast. So that's not going to happen to you, right? We're going to talk about what it means to build up a sustainable grazing system. And because the system is designed in alignment with how nature functions and those core principles we covered in previous episodes, there will be minimal input from you over the long term while your animals will be happy and healthy. Sound good? So in this episode, I'm not going to cover the different species. At some point in the future, we will do some episodes dedicated to different options of sheep, goats, chickens, turkeys, ducks, and guinea fowl although I won't touch on cows or horses since I don't have much experience with them. So if you're considering getting some livestock, but don't know which is the best fit for you in your situation, eventually we will get you covered. If you're thinking from a prepping perspective, I always recommend trying to find the wildest form of every species. Those are the ones that will be able to survive in the conditions that we might be living in. Your goal with chickens, for example, isn't to get the heaviest layer, but actually probably the opposite, because there's almost no way to make chickens with what they lay today, an egg a day just about. There's no way to feed them enough protein from the natural environment. It's almost impossible. So if you're trying to feed 100% pasture, then it needs to be something that can actually be sustained. So your goal isn't to get the heaviest layer, but probably the chicken that lays 150 or 120 eggs a year. That's much more sustainable. And that also still requires a good pasture system. So that's kind of how you want to think about that process. If you're thinking about, I want chickens that don't require inputs, or you want ducks that don't require inputs, start thinking about which species are more related to wild species and generally the ones that have the lower production because they're not having to eat as much to offset that production. So one of my favorite things about talking about grazing management is that 90% of it is about the plant life on the soil. Like we said before, we are limited in productivity by the energy from the sun, and it's our jobs as stewards of the soil to maximize this energy as it bounces from plant to soil to animal, back to plant, and so on. In economic terms, we refer to this process of following the capture and transfer of energy as the velocity speed of money. We're talking about the same concept, but in different terms, in terms of the sun's energy. So let's talk about how grass works, specifically in how it grows, what makes some species cool season and warm season grasses, and how this translates into maximizing productivity. Grass growth begins with a tiller, also called a shoot. The tiller consists of parts which will develop into the leaves, the stem, the roots, nodes, seed head, and dormant buds. From the tiller, nearly every part of the grass can be recreated, including new tillers. The dormant buds have the potential to produce new tillers and growing points. We call the location on the plant from which it grows the growing point. The growing point of grasses is at the base of the internode sheath and the blade. I'm assuming everybody is laid in grass at some point, right? So if you've ever picked grass, you'll notice there's the blade of grass that comes up from what looks like a split open piece of grass. That split piece of grass is the internode sheath. That's where new grass comes up, including the tiller. Grasses vary in their location of the growing point. Some grass species maintain their growing point at or near ground level and therefore are resistant to close continuous grazing. Tall fescue and Kentucky bluegrass have a growing point near ground level so they can be grazed much shorter than other grasses. I don't expect you to remember any of these grass names or any of these other species. My hope is that when you walk away from this episode, you're going to be able to think, I understand the basic concepts. And if you ever need to go back and look up specific details about I've decided to get this species or that species of animal, you kind of know some of these basic terms when you see them and you know the basic functions. So we'll be talking a bit about which animals are higher grazers and lower grazers and things like that, those details are going to affect which species of grasses you want to plant. Anyways, other grasses elevate their growing point as the internodes, those areas where the grass blade comes up from and elongate. 
reed canary grass and smooth brome grass have elevated growing points. In this case, if the growing point is removed by grazing, any new growth must come from dormant buds. The energy for this process must come from energy stored in the roots. If some leaf area has been maintained on the plant, the initiation of the new growing point can take place without depleting energy stores. Think of the blade of grass as almost a fruit on a tree. Removing the fruit isn't going to cause any real significant damage unless you also take the branch too. Our goal is to keep the pasture in a vegetative state as much as we possibly can. The transition and reproductive stages are referred to as jointing stages, the point at which the grass leaf starts to elongate to form a stem. In the transition stage, the growing point is elevated and can be potentially removed by grazing in some species. Once the grass is in the reproductive stage, growth has been completed. The stem is elongated and bears a seed head. Any new growth must come from dormant buds. So allowing the grass to grow until full maturity is equal to allowing the grass to be overgrazed in terms of how much work it causes the new grass to grow. However, if you allow it to go to seed, you may also be adding new seed to your pasture, which, depending on its thickness, may be something you need. It will not grow as aggressively after that, and nutritional quality is poorer than when it's vegetative. So, for 99% of us, our goal is to keep the pasture in a vegetative state as much as we possibly can. I know, that was a little dense. You might want to look at a graph of a piece of grass. I think I kind of explained the main points, but hopefully if you do need to re-listen to that, you can. So what this means is that we want to keep grass kind of short. And unlike when we look at our mowed front lawns, short for us means taller than five or so inches. And depending on species, generally under a foot. One of our goals must be to maintain leaf area to allow the plant to continue to manufacture energy at all times, which means it must have some length to absorb sunlight. If we allow pastures to become overgrazed, there are numerous negative effects. First and foremost, overgrazing limits the plant's ability to manufacture energy. This reduces growth rates and reduces the velocity of solar energy through our system. When the plant cannot store adequate energy, it will be slower to regrow after being grazed. It will also be less likely to survive the winter or be slower to start growing in the spring. Effective grazing management will maintain at least some leaf area on the pasture plants after grazing to jumpstart regrowth. It is highly recommended to include legumes such as clover and alfalfa in your pasture mix. Legumes have the ability to quote-unquote fix nitrogen from the atmosphere through a type of bacteria that colonizes the roots of the legume. With time, some of this nitrogen will become available to the grasses. Often, annual peas are used for fixing nitrogen, and as they die and begin to decompose, the nitrogen becomes accessible to the other plants. Perennial plants comprise most of the pasture land in the United States. I know you probably already know what perennial plants are, but if not, these are plants which regrow each year and seldom need to be reestablished if managed properly. This makes them economical to use for grazing, and in a time when maybe you can't get seeds again. The majority of perennials are grasses and legumes. Understanding the strengths and weaknesses of perennial grass and legume species is important to grazing management. Using diverse mixtures of grasses and legumes usually makes for a more productive and resilient pasture than using any one species alone. Cool season perennial grasses and legumes make up the predominant forage species in the mid-Atlantic and northeastern regions. So what makes cool season and warm season species? Yeah, I know, it sounds gimmicky, but there is a science to them, and if you understand why, it actually answers a lot of questions about many low-growing plants you might have. Although animals eat all year round, there is no all-season plant to use as forage. Knowing that some plants are what's called C3, which is a cool-season temperate plant, and some plants are referred to as C4, yes, that's the letter C is in cat 4, are warm-season tropical plants, is a basic key to having quality forage all year long. But understanding the physiology, that is, the internal chemical changes of both can even further improve the management of forages. The next paragraph is a little dense, and probably the most dense in this episode, 
but once you've got it, it's incredibly useful information. C3 and C4 plants both use the process of photosynthesis to convert light energy and atmospheric CO2 into plant food energy, that is, carbohydrates. C3 and C4 plants differ in the leaf anatomies and enzymes used to carry out that photosynthesis. These differences are important with respect to their optimal growing conditions, nitrogen and water use efficiency, forage quality, and seasonal production profile. C3 plants are called temperate or cool season plants. I won't get into the science too deep, but C3 plants fix CO2 more efficiently in cooler environments. C3 plants have an optimum temperature range of 65 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Growth begins when the soil temperature is at 40 to 45 degrees. C3 plants become less efficient as the temperature increases, but they provide a higher percentage of crude protein than C4 plants. Cool temperatures of early spring also affect the activity of soil organisms which release nitrogen from organic reserves. Thus, C3 plants respond to nitrogen fertilization during the season, that is, the spring and fall. Cool season grasses are productive in the spring and fall because of the cooler temperatures during the day and night, shorter photo periods, and high soil moisture. During the summer, growth is reduced and dormancy is induced by high temperatures and low precipitation. However, in fall when temperatures drop and moisture is more available, growth resumes. C3 plants can be annual or perennial. Annual C3 plants include wheat, rye, and oats. Perennial C3 plants include orchard grass, fescues, and perennial ryegrass. The degradation of C3 grasses in the rumen of an animal is often faster than C4 grasses because of the thin cell walls and leaf tissue and are therefore of higher forage quality. Animals that have rumens are your bigger grazers, your cows, your sheeps, and your goats. This is not a concern for your chickens or ducks. C4 plants are often called tropical or warm season plants. C4 plants are more efficient at gathering carbon dioxide and utilizing nitrogen from the atmosphere and recycled nitrogen in the soil. They also use less water to make dry matter. They grow best at 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. They begin to grow when the soil temperature is 60 to 65 degrees. Forage of C4 plants is generally lower in protein than C3 plants, but the protein is more efficiently used by animals. This efficiency may result because C3 plants contain a lot of non-protein nitrogen, very changeable in form, which pass into the gut or are absorbed directly into the portal vein leading to the liver and not incorporated into microbial proteins by rumen microflora. Warm season grasses are specifically triggered by day lengths, so latitudes should be considered in selecting warm season grass species. They are most productive during the summer warmer months. Often, cool season and warm season species are used in combinations to provide forage throughout the year. Much like C3 plants, C4 plants can be annual or perennial. Annual C4 plants include corn, Sudan grass, and pearl millet. Perennial C4 plants include big blue stem, Indian grass, Bermuda grass, switchgrass, and old world blue stems. For cool season perennials, they generally begin growing in March. Their peak growth occurs in April and May. Growth slows or stops in the summer, and then we get another smaller burst of growth from August to October, with growing trailing off in November. So if you think about it from your orchard's perspective, wherever you're planning on having your animals during the summer, you want C4 grasses, and wherever you're planning on having them in the spring and fall, you want your C3 grasses. Of course, it doesn't work exactly like one week is cool weather, second week is cool weather, and the next week is cool weather, and the next week is suddenly 95 degrees, so there'll definitely be a gradation in that change. With that said, I want to cover quickly the most common perennial grasses and their benefits and challenges, and I'll talk a bit about which ones I personally have. The first is Kentucky bluegrass, which you've probably heard of before if you don't recognize it outright. It's a sod-forming species that can tolerate very low grazing. Goats and sheep tend to be low grazers, so this is a really great grass for them. Kentucky bluegrass tends to be present in very old, long-established pastures. It's not very tolerant of heat and drought, and can fill in the understory among taller growing pasture species. I've got some of this in my growing area scattered between my fruit trees, and it's great for my chickens as well. 
Orchard grass, another common grass, is a bunch grass that has good palatability and reasonable summer growth. It mixes well with legumes and spreads only by seed, meaning if you have a bare spot, don't expect it to grow and just continue to cover up anything that, that's open. Tall fescue is also a bunch grass, but can form a very heavy sod via rhizomes. It also spreads by seed. They're very resilient, tough, and something that I use because it has good heat and drought tolerance. So if you're on sandy soil like I am, it makes a lot of sense to use it. Timothy is one of the most common bunch grasses that works well as a part of a diverse mix. It's very palatable and can tolerate heavy, wet soil. Timothy does not produce well during the summer and does not do well with heat or drought. So if you have sandy soil like I do, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Perennial ryegrass is another bunch grass that establishes rapidly but only spreads by seed. It's a very highly palatable species, has higher levels of digestibility and sugars than other grasses, therefore it is usually favored by uh, various animals. Uh, mixes well with legumes, which is always important. The only challenge is that it doesn't tend to be long-lived, so even though it is a perennial, that doesn't mean it's forever perennial. Uh, I've got some of this in my field, and my chickens and ducks both love it. So that's all I wanted to cover with grasses. It wasn't too painful. I think I only covered four. Um, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about nitrogen fixers and how you'll want to pair those with your grasses, starting with alfalfa, the most expensive. Alfalfa is tap-rooted, meaning it is one main root, which goes straight down. It's a perennial legume that has good tolerance of heat and drought. It does best on well-drained soils and does not tolerate clayey soils. It's great because it's good filler. Animals like to eat it. It's high in protein, and it also fixes nitrogen into the soil. All around, it's a great thing to have if you can afford it. Red clover is another perennial that happens to be a legume, and it tends to be short-lived. It's very tolerant of heat and drought. You usually have to reseed every once in a while if you don't let it naturally reseed. It can tolerate heavy soils but prefers good drainage. It is very often the self-seed, so it's something you don't have to worry about too much despite being a short-lived perennial. White clover, another clover, is also a perennial legume. It can spread by rhizomes. Ladino white clover varieties are taller growing and yield more than common Dutch white clover, which is often found in pastures and fields. While it's not as drought tolerant as red clover and alfalfa, it does better on well-drained soils. It's definitely something to include because it does, it does add some diversity. And there's a bunch more out there. This is only scratching the surface. It's barely even scratching the surface, to be honest. If you go on any commercial-grade seed company uh, website, farming, the amount of seed options that are available are well into the hundreds. So this is like bare, bare bones just get you guys aware of what's out there and get you kind of thinking about what your options are. You don't have to get fancy. You don't have to get crazy. The animals don't care. It can be as simple as you want it to be because at the end of the day, as long as they're getting what they need from the pasture, you're going to be all right. It's important to remember that when we're talking about providing these different cover crops, that most of the species that we're running, goats, chickens, you name it, the basics is what they've had for a millennia. They're going to be all right. That said, the point I want to make, though, is that you'll want to think about a few things when it comes to establishing your grazing fields. You want to make sure you have some perennial grasses that are both cool season and warm season growers so that you'll have growth throughout the year. And you want to make sure you've got enough nitrogen fixers incorporated that can be foraged. Further, by knowing your soil type, which you should after the soils episode, we should know what demands our soils have of those cover crops that you can plant. Is your site sandy? clayey, high pH, low pH? Do you have a lot of rain and is your water table high or low? Once you figure out that matrix for meeting these requirements, you'll likely find only a handful of species that work on your site. A bunch of those same farming websites will actually give you um, the option to check off what your needs are and will limit that list of hundreds of seeds down to 30 or 40 different varieties. And again, then you can kind of nitpick based on things like how high you want it to grow, cost, all those types of things. If you want, try them all. If you can afford to, see which ones take over. The ones that take over is nature telling you which are better for your site's conditions. If it's not any of the ones you put down and it's instead weeds, then it's time to go back to the drawing board and figure out why those weeds are taking over. Which brings me to the idea of annuals. 
Although most pasture acreage in the United States is perennial grasses and legumes, there are also many annual plant species that can work well as grazing crops. However, because you need to reestablish each year, the expense of establishment can make use of annuals cost prohibitive. And if we're talking about a post-collapse society, chances are you're not going to be able to get those seeds again in the future unless you happen to live near a farm for those things. With that said, there are times when an annual may fit into a grazing program. During pasture renovation, to break weed cycles, to provide a good seedbed for the new perennial forage seeding by building biomass near soil, or for dual use as a cover crop and grazing forage. I'm not going to cover specifics because I'm not trying to read a Wikipedia page for you, but get you thinking about more of this big picture, if this is something you're interested in and you don't know where to start. A challenge I find with a lot of folks looking to get into sustainable food and building food communities is that they don't know what they don't know. So this way you at least know what you don't know. And I can't give you all the answers, but I can at least get you thinking about the right things. Even before you start establishing your forage crop, you need to think about a couple things. You need to consider when you want to plant your seed, that is spring, summer, fall, or winter. Prepare your fields in advance of that date which involves getting your soil tested, or if you've already had it tested and you know what your soil needs, making those adjustments that you need to do. As I always tend to be doing, this means this reverse planning process. That is, if you want to get goats next fall, what do you need to do to get seed down for this spring? Which means, what did you need to do the previous year to prepare the soil? We'll begin with considerations on when to seed, and then we'll talk about soil testing. Then we'll go over a timeline of things to consider one year and at six months prior to seeding. We'll wrap up with some guidelines for doing the actual seeding. You not only need to decide in what year you're going to plant your forage crop, you also need to decide on what season. The season in which you decide to do your seeding will inform your timeline for preparations. As you're deciding when you'll plant your seed, consider the following pros and cons of seeding during the different seasons. Late summer is generally considered the most successful time to do a forage seeding in the Northeast. An early maturing grain crop can be grown and harvested, the seedbed prepared, and the forage crop seeded before late August. Fall rains and cool temperatures provide an ideal environment for forage seedling growth and establishment. Furthermore, late summer seedlings typically have less competition from weeds as compared to spring seedlings. Further, by having already grown a grain crop, we can use that as cover for the seeds to help inhibit weed growth and retain moisture. We haven't talked about natural farming yet, and that's something we'll be talking about in the near future. But by using those natural farming methods, we are able to effectively limit competition from weeds and also increase our germination rates of our seeds. Spring forage seedlings are common throughout the Northeast and can be as successful as late summer seedlings. However, wet soil conditions make preparing a good seedbed difficult. Increased weed competition and the possibility of summer droughts also increase the risks of planting forage seedlings in the spring. And with climate change, it seems like summers are becoming drier and longer, so the challenge for growing in the spring is going to be even more competitive. Now, soil pH impacts the availability of nutrients to plants. For best pasture performance, you'll want to maintain a soil pH between 6.0 and 7.0, with 7.0 being neutral. Over 7.0 is basic, less than 7.0 is acidic. You can try to neutralize your soil with lime or with ash, depending on where your current soil's pH is, and further, you can try to use species that are more accommodating of your soil's pH. That's another one of those choices you'll have when you're looking at a seed list. Further, some species are better suited to certain soil types than others. For example, alfalfa does not tolerate poorly drained or low pH soils, while red clover and reed canary grass perform very well under these conditions. While it is often difficult and expensive to change soil characteristics, you can select forage species that are adapted to specific soil conditions. Proper matching of forage species to soil characteristics not only makes establishment easier, but also improves production over the life of the stand. The six months prior to seeding is your last chance to adjust soil pH. Most agricultural grade limestone, that is, the bags you can get for about three bucks at Lowe's, 
require about six months from time of application until it effectively changes the soil pH. Consequently, adding lime to raise the soil pH within less than six months of seeding will generally result in forages being seeded into soil with a pH lower than what you want. If the crop rotation permits, the six months before seeding is your final opportunity to control those perennial weeds that will be difficult or impossible to control once the forage is seeded. Seeding depth and seed to soil contact are critical. General rule of thumb is that seeds should not be placed deeper than five times their diameter. For most forage crops, seeding depth should not exceed three-eighths of an inch. Deeper seedlings will drastically reduce the number of seedlings that will establish. Something as simple as running a rake over the field a few times is enough to ensure seed viability. After planting, seeds must absorb water from the soil before they germinate. Poor seed-to-soil contact will delay water absorption, allowing seeds to dry after absorbing water, and in general cause poor germination and forage establishment. Legumes have the ability to convert atmospheric nitrogen into plant nitrogen through a symbiotic relationship with rhizobia bacteria. In many soils, sufficient numbers of rhizobia bacteria are already present to adequately infect legume roots, particularly if the same legume species has been grown in the field within the past few years. Inoculation, that is, adding rhizobia bacteria to the seed prior to planting, is recommended when the legume being planted has not been grown in the field for the past three years. Inoculation is inexpensive insurance that sufficient bacteria will be in the soil for proper nitrogen nutrition of the legume plant. Most times, when you buy seeds, they'll ask you if you want inoculated seeds or not, and usually the price isn't much different. So if you can afford the few cents, get the inoculated seeds. Nurse crops are typically small grain species that are used to provide protection to the target forage species as it gets established. Using these species as a nurse crop with spring forage seedlings is a common practice. A nurse crop can reduce the potential for soil erosion and weed infestations, but they also can compete with the forage seedlings for light, moisture, and soil nutrients. If you decide to use a nurse crop, remember to seed the nurse crop at a reduced rate, say at a third of the rate of what you're putting down for your actual ground cover, and mow the nurse crop off when it is in vegetative stage to minimize competition with ground cover seedlings. Now, maybe you don't need to establish a new pasture because you already have pastures. However, pastures can be less productive over time for various reasons, including soil fertility declines, weeds take over, legume populations decrease, or desirable species become sparse because of poor grazing practices. This is often related to management issues, such as overgrazing. For example, overgrazing often results in pastures that are predominantly Kentucky bluegrass and smaller, unproductive varieties of white clover, such as the ones found in lawns. When this imbalance of plant species occurs, we need to renovate the pasture. The goal of pasture renovation is to restore balance to the pasture system and bring it back to its optimal production status. Pastures often change composition over time, sometimes due to decreases in fertility. When renovating pastures, always begin with a soil test and adjust soil fertility accordingly. Many times, simply improving soil fertility will allow the preferred plant species to become more competitive and increase pasture production. A good time to test soil is in the fall so that lime can be applied and have time to react with the soil prior to the start of the growing season the following spring. Erosion can occur when soil is disturbed. For example, if you've recently renovated a pasture, the soil is unstable and can be washed away with heavy rains, especially if you till it. Animal hooves can also facilitate erosion. Constant trampling in areas of high traffic can kill vegetation and create a path for water runoff because of compaction, destroying those little air pockets in the soil created by the fungal and microbial community, which lead to washed out areas in the pasture and soil erosion. We strive to be good stewards of the land and water resources. When soil erodes off our fields and pastures into our waterways, the additional nutrients and sediment can negatively impact water quality. A goal of a pasture manager should be to keep nutrients and water on the land to benefit plant growth. So 
before we even get into the whole idea of pasture design, which I'm sure is what you expected the first episode to be, I want to backtrack quickly to this whole conversation about developing pasture because it does make a lot of assumptions that there is affordable access to seeds, that there is lime availability, that you're working on a site that already is available to be worked. That is, it's not a forest currently or a parking lot or whatever. All of this can be a challenge if you're, say, deciding suddenly that growing food and having animals is important to your survival, right? This whole process, working from a place where you have something, say, a backyard that was already a grass, to creating a useful pasture, it takes well over a year. I think you probably figured that out. Further, if you're trying to manage livestock and introduce livestock because of the reduced good crops, chances are you'll need a lot of supplemental food to offset the less productive forage. I hear you. And I'm in the same position. Before I moved to our current property, I had lived on the easy version, the grassy backyard, free of major trees or rocks or invasive species or pH concerns, but the property was small. So we moved to where we are now with 10 times the property size, but my current location is and was a late stage pole forest, primarily covered in 80 foot pine trees with a variety of 20 foot pine trees covering all of the edges with a pH around four and a thin, thin hummus layer and almost no topsoil. The soil is very, very sandy loam, and despite this, the slopes of the property cause massive runoff. In short, by nearly every metric, the property is less than ideal, and I think that's being generous. So I've been tackling this project in sections, more or less in order to get some of the property functional at a time, and so that I don't spend the first two years just getting the soil ready without getting any return on it because I do worry that doing it all at once runs the risk that if I'm not ready when some kind of food supply chain break happens, I'm screwed. So what are your options to get things rolling if you're not in a place to spend years getting soil ready for clearing, remediating pH, building hummus through biomass, and so on? First, identify the best spots on your property. So I mentioned that there are slopes with runoff issues on our site. So in keeping in mind with what we had discussed in the forest ecology episode, the bottom of the slope offers the best soil on our site, and conveniently also is close to our house, so this made an ideal placement for our annual vegetable garden. Additionally, we started clearing the land where the garden would go and the southern regions, primarily the southeastern region of the garden to increase light access without increasing temperature extremes to the annual garden. This wood that we cut down was burned to heat our home, and wood ash is a good alternative to lime to increase pH and add calcium as well as potassium back into the soil, so we started adding it to our soil. Now, like most things that I read on the internet about gardening and farming, just saying to add wood ash to soil is helpful, but not very practical, right? Although wood ashes typically have a lower percentage of lime, that is calcium carbonate, the active ingredient in lime which raises pH, the alkaline compounds present are more reactive than agricultural lime. Therefore, pound for pound, the two are about equal in raising soil pH. Usually you'll hear folks talk about adding lime based on acreage and based on soil pH change goals. However, there are three triangulates which need to be considered when adding lime or ash to improve soils. The pH you are at, the pH you want to get to, and the type of soil you're working with. Let's assume you're being cautious and don't want to overdo it, or you're trying to limit expenses. For sandy soil, like what I have, you're looking to add about 25 pounds of lime or ash per 1,000 square feet, while clay soil can be up to quadruple that figure. Now, 1,000 square feet is just 100 by 10, so we're not talking about a huge space that needs up to 25 pounds of ash. Further, adding ash and lime takes time to work its way into actually changing the pH of the soil, and we wanted to start building up the biomass of the soil. Concurrently with adding ash, which doesn't need to happen at the same time, it just worked out that way for me, I was able to mulch the leaf litter to accelerate the breakdown of the litter and increase the hummus layer by running the lawnmower throughout the area I was preparing. I started seeding the forest floor with buckwheat, 
rye, snow peas, and hairy vetch in order to build biomass quickly and add nitrogen into the soil as those plants break down. While seeding, I focused on thinning the forest enough to get light penetration into the forest floor, aiming for about 40% light exposure in order to help germination of the understory. During late summer, it was a great time to drill in my pasture seed of clover and grasses while the buckwheat was getting ready to get chopped down in order to provide protection for the seedlings. The various grasses and clovers thrown down were used because they were ideal either for low pH soil or are pretty resilient in any types of soil. The cost of the seed for the quarter acre that I put it down on was roughly $250. With this $250, I was able to provide firewood for my heat, use the branches for kindling, and anything that wasn't good for firewood went into Hoogle Mound beds for my annual garden. Anything extra is stacked out of the way for future use. I try to remove as little as possible from the property since all plant matter is stored energy from the sun and I'm not giving away any of it for free. As the tree canopy continues to be thinned, I planted and will continue to plant whips and seedlings throughout the property based on a plan I put together to create the system I want to use, which is the subject of another episode. Hopefully this will give you an idea of the process a bit and I didn't discuss land alterations or water systems management, but it should give you a very basic idea of transitioning your property from what you have to what you want in a practical way that doesn't involve thousands of dollars of equipment, which is a major barrier to folks. At this point, we've reviewed most of the big picture pieces of developing pasture for grazing. We've covered the general areas of how pastures work in theory and how to help pastures through identifying the correct species in your pastures based on the soil, as well as the basics of how grasses grow in order to effectively utilize the energy stored within those grasses. With this basic foundation, you can, if you're interested, start identifying species that may work with you in terms of pasture crops before we even dive into pasture systems and other issues in regards to water management. In our next episode, possibly the next two, We'll cover some of the practical pieces of pasture planning and management, including different pasture systems, some of which we have covered in the soils episode, traditional and modern fencing systems with a focus on systems that don't rely on supply chains to maintain their sustainability, water, and some of the philosophical components that are inextricably tied to the livestock process. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. 